You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Welcome back to Private Parts Unknown, a podcast about love and sexuality around the world. I'm Courtney Kosak, and today we're talking about sex and the internet and how the more they fucked around and intermingled, the more they changed each other in some kind of unexpected ways. And my guest today wrote the book on it. I'm Samantha Cole. I am a senior editor at Motherboard, Vice's tech outlet, and you find me on Twitter at Sam Lee Cole. Samantha's new book is called How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex, An Unexpected History. And her journalism in the sex, gender, tech space definitely informed this breadthy overview that she was able to deliver. So the book is kind of a wide-angled view of the history of sex and the internet and how these things relate to one another. So it's starting in, um, I guess, like the 60s, where we're talking about the infrastructure of the internet and how it was built, all the way up until, you know, you talk about like online dating and online gaming and all of these things kind of had sex and sexuality built in. Um, and of course, we talk about porn and sex work and things like that and up to today where it's very much something that uh, you encounter anytime you get on the internet (laughs) is sex and sexuality if you're I guess in the right circles and you know talking about like OnlyFans and kind of the the gigification of sex and sex work and then um, where we're going from here I guess is kind of where we we end in the book but yeah that's the the too long didn't read. In this episode, we swap early internet stories, talk about how Samantha got started on this beat, and dive into the impact of online dating, revenge porn, and social media on sex, relationships, and sex work. It's fascinating to reflect on how technology has changed our lives down to the most intimate details. So let's get into it. My early internet experiences were just ones of talking to other people from around the world who had totally different experiences from mine. Um, I mentioned in the book that I was living a pretty sheltered life as a homeschooled kid. Um, So I was looking for, you know, new perspectives and, you know, people to talk to always. And so with the internet, we got the internet when I was, I guess, probably 10 or 11 in our house. And at first it was just like, I'm going to play these flash games and like, you know, do kind of the goofy kid stuff and then pretty quickly became, oh, I can actually like talk to anyone Yeah, <laughs> using this, you know, talk to not just like my friends um, through like emails and stuff and, you know, making like long distance friendships, but also just like message boards and things like that where I could just join topics that I was interested in and jump in there. So it was pretty radical for me at the time to be able to, to do that. It felt very much like, oh, what else? Like, what's the next thing that I'm going to like come across on this crazy machine. (laughs) Yeah, totally. I feel like we're, I mean, I, the internet kind of came into its own when I was in middle school. Mm -hmm. So kind of the same era with that, where like, you know, you've had a little before time. And then as you're coming into your own like adolescence, then there's the internet too. Um, and I think you mentioned, what was the, the thing where like one in a, like the crazy statistic of those chats turned sexual. Oh, it was um chat roulette. 
Chat roulette. Yes, chat <laughs> yeah. roulette. Oh my God. Yeah. I that's had all the memories coming back to me because I remember that. And they would turn sexual like really frequently. <laughs> yeah, like immediately. It was always like, I mean, I remember like playing chat roulette with my brother and being like, oh, we're gonna like see who are we gonna see next? And then it would always be like creepy really fast. Like oh my God, what's happening now? And then like, when we were older, we would have like friends over and then it would be like the the party game kind of is like getting on chat roulette and seeing totally. who you would meet. But yeah, that was a wild, um, chat roulette still exists. Oh, really? <laughs> was, yeah. Oh, crazy. I know. That's like a whole, bringing in a whole new generation. I wonder if they still do that. <laughs> God, I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> so like for yourself, how do you think the internet kind of tied into your sexuality, you know, as you're like developing and growing up at the same time as the internet? Yeah. I mean, I, um, my internet, early internet experiences were pretty wholesome. I was scared to kind of go find porn. Um, I didn't want to see anything that I wasn't supposed to see because I was listening to the adults who were like, it can be dangerous to talk to strangers, like stranger danger. And I kind of took that a little, probably a little too seriously because it was like, oh, I, I'm afraid to really, truly dive into some of this stuff. So I kept it very like text-based in like, you know, message words and things. But, you know, I had early like crushes and loves and like, you know, I was always like involved in those little like dramas going on that were always a little bit sexually charged or a little bit like romantically charged as a teenager where you're talking to people online and it's like, you know, what if we met someday? Like, what if this is actually like, you know, Mm -hmm. someone that I want to date? You know, it's all very kind of silly, like high school stuff. But I was also exposed to like just a lot of different people who had very different relationships to like sexuality and gender who were talking to me as I guess I was probably like 14, 15 at that point and was raised in a very like conservative Christian environment. And, you know, I'm talking to people who have just completely different like experiences in their lives. And I think that alone is, can be very transformative for a young person to say, you know, oh, there's other people out there who are really smart and really have their shit together who are not in my bubble. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 So I think just that alone, I think, was a really good starting point before I even got to, like, the weird and shocking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so how did your beat, dev- like, how did this become your beat, kind of? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting that I was, like, kind of, like, scared to even look at it as a kid. And now I'm just, like, I'm on Pornhub every day. Like, <laughs> I just log on and I'm like, what's going on today? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was always a... a tech reporter. It wasn't always a tech reporter. I was, I was doing more like culture and um, human interest type stuff when I first got started. And then I started getting more involved in like science reporting and tech reporting when I started doing online media. And then from there, I was, I was really pursuing doing like the hard sciences and that kind of thing. And then I got hired at Vice and they were like, well, we have people doing like the science stuff, but would you be interested in doing more like the sexuality and gender and culture type things. And I was like, yeah, it's yeah, sure. (laughs) I don't like, you know, whatever that means, that sounds cool. Not fully like expecting it to be my entire beat. And you started off with some of the, the early, like kind of just writing from a press release type stories, Mm -hmm. which were fine. But then we, my editors and I kind of talked about how, you know, this needed to be a beat that was taken very seriously as it's, own 
thing. Like it needed to be regarded with the same seriousness that we would talk about like Facebook and Google, like porn and the adult industry and how, you know, we talk about sex education even online is its own big industry or industries uh, that are bringing in lots of money and lots of attention and why not pay attention to that, I guess. So that's kind of what got it started. I mean, that was probably, that was about five years ago, six years ago, maybe a little less, but yeah, that from there, it was just kind of like, okay, this makes a lot of sense now that we can kind of interrogate these systems through an internet lens, through a tech lens, but also integrating like how people use the internet and tech to explore their sexuality and make money on the internet and things like that. So, you know, there's so much in here. (laughs) What was kind of the most interesting thing you learned or like your biggest like rabbit hole moment in researching the book? I just, I really, I think because I wasn't there, I really loved just the earliest chapters where we talk about like the 70s, 80s and early 90s of like the way that communities popped up very much like decentralized kind of homegrown DIY type internet life. So you had like bulletin board systems and Usenet and uh, multi-user domains. So these are all spaces where like you have someone running it, like a an admin, uh, usually from, or a lot of the times from their house or depending on the technology, it would be from their house. And then people just came to have fun. Like it was just like, or to, to talk about interesting ideas and things like that. It was smaller and it was easier to manage. <laughs> um, and it's just the, all of the kind of lessons were getting learned there early on about like moderation and governance and things like that. And even like sexuality and consent and those kind of stories. So in the book, I reference the very famous rape in cyberspace essay by Julian Dibble. So that's a, that's like an instance where someone was, they felt like they were sexually assaulted in a multi-user domain, which is hundred percent text-based, but someone had taken control of their avatar and did, you know, described terrible things. And that kind of threw this entire community into chaos and they had to decide whether they would make rules about this and what those rules would be. And would there be like a voting system or like what would, how do we deal with people who, you know, violate other people's trust and consent? And on that scale, I mean, it's the same problems that we're seeing like on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all Mm -hmm. these other platforms, but on a very much more smaller scale that is case by case, but it's the same stuff. So it was just kind of like going down those rabbit holes and reading about the things that they were dealing with at the time um, were always super, super interesting because it was like, oh my God, nothing changes. (laughs) Everything is the same. (laughs) Humans are humans, you know. Hey, privates. Privates with penises, I'm talking to you. (laughs) Our sponsor, Fleshlight, can help you reach new heights with your self-pleasure. And that is because Fleshlight is the number one selling male sex toy in the world. And they don't just leave you hanging over there. At Fleshlight, you can explore sex toys with expert guides and advice, especially if you're a beginner or you're looking to level up. If you have been listening to the show for a while, you know how I feel about self-pleasure, and it is very, very good. And I definitely endorse using sex toys. I have a lot of fun with sex toys myself. So with the Fleshlight Girls series, you can embrace your wildest porn star fantasies with a different porn actress every night. 
what? With the variety of models, sensations, and intensities, you can live out limitless fantasies. And you can automate your fantasies with a universal launch that fits most Fleshlight products. With its innovative touch control system, just set the controls, sit back, and enjoy. And you have pleasure right in your hands. Your pleasure is in your complete control. And as the ultimate male pleasure device on the market, it's as versatile as you are. Anatomical, stamina building, vibrating, or made for couples, you name it. You define your luxury moment. And I just wanna say, if you have any shame around sex toys, please don't. It is so much better than being weird with girls because you feel kind of desperate or whatever. Fleshlight just allows you to chill out Wait for the right girl when she comes. And in the meantime, you know you are going to be getting yours and having a good time. So you don't even have to sweat it. And right now, Fleshlight is offering Private Parts Unknown listeners 10% off your order with our code PRIVATE10. So you just go to ppupod.com. That's the website, ppupod.com. You click Fleshlight and you use the promo code PRIVATE10 to get 10% off your delicious new device. Again, that is ppupod.com and enter code PRIVATE10 and it really helps support the show. It helps support yourself and your own sex drive. So go ahead and use the link in the episode description. We can all be horny together. We can keep this podcast going. So get yourself a flashlight and get yourself off. So let's go through some of the kind of like categories of it, right? So like dating in the internet with online dating. Can you do like a mini little history for listeners about that? Just like kind of maybe the most important points you thought. Yeah. So um, I met my boyfriend on Tinder. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's like it's most people now I feel like. Or maybe not most, but it's like it's a, you know, this. how do you meet people nowadays other than on an app? And I remember just even like 10 years ago, that was like a weird thing to admit. Totally. Um, It was like, oh, we met at a bar, which is true, but like you (laughs) you were introduced through Tinder (laughs) or whatever, you know, it was like, I guess probably like eHarmony or something, like whatever was before Tinder. It seemed more desperate then. I don't know why. Yeah. It was like, oh, you need a computer. You need the internet to like meet people. What's wrong with you? (laughs) And now everyone... Does it that way? Yeah. So online dating on the internet, I started it in the book with the 60s before the internet, obviously, because people were using computers to match people. Um, and I feel like that was a big step toward how we do online dating today. So you would get a, a questionnaire. A lot of this happened like on college campuses. So you would get a little questionnaire and it would say like, what are you interested in? Describe yourself. And then you'd mail it back in and then this company would feed it to a machine and then the machine would like match it with other people who had the same interests. But some of these didn't even, it was all just kind of like a ruse. Like it, there was no <laughs> matching <laughs> happening. It was just, people were just like doing it manually or just like slapping them together and being like, yeah, here's her number. Here's his number. <laughs> it totally went through a machine. Trust me. Totally. Yeah. A machine. <laughs> Knew that you were the perfect match for one another. Trust it. And people did. Like, people really did, like, use that as a talking point to really get a conversation going. So it was just an excuse to, like, talk to someone else. Like, to do the initial introduction and then figure out why the machine thought you were the match. And by doing that, you were 
on a date. You were doing, <laughs> you were actually doing the thing that people do naturally. But I think those companies were ahead of their time because they didn't have the internet. They kind of, they had it in their minds. They kind of knew what they wanted to do into the future, but they were a little too early to actually get it taken off. So then later, I guess it was in the 90s when you had like web personals, which was one of the first uh, online dating companies. And that that company actually developed a lot of the technology that we have today around like online shopping and ad networks and things like that, because you needed that technology to be able to like track and match people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you would have like web personals and um, matchmaker and a lot of these other sites that were very basic compared to what we have today, but they were the predecessors to like match.com, which then became like this huge, huge company that became like the biggest in the game because they, they claimed to have these algorithms that would then like match you up. It's the same idea as the, the computers and the questionnaires, but they were actually doing it. Um, um, and then you have like Tinder and ones like that, where they were just like, fuck the like questionnaire. <laughs> All people want to do is be in the same like location and know that the other person is interested in their face, like, <laughs> and just match it from there. So they really gamified the entire thing. So it became like, how, how fast can we get people swiping through and how many notifications can we send them to keep coming back to the app? And that was a really big turning point for online dating because it just did away with all the other stuff that people mm-hmm. thought was necessary. It turned out to not be. I didn't have anything in my profile. I had literally nothing. <laughs> I just had four <laughs> pictures and I was like, well, the rest of it needs to happen offline. So yeah. Yeah. I think I, I know a lot of people who are of that mindset who are like, I just want to get off the app as fast as possible. Like talking in the app or like trying to match and talk to other people in the app is a waste of time. Uh, I feel like that's probably a good strategy because it's like everything that's happening online is you're kind of curating yourself. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, I went on a lot of like really shitty online dates and you get there and it's like, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. like, who are you? You're like, (laughs) you don't even look like like that guy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, what picture was this? Like, I don't (laughs) don't remember this at all. And it's just like, it's it's down to so much like chemistry and in-person connection that you just don't get from like, swiping at like a million miles an hour. I had a friend who would, he would swipe. I'm sure tons of people would do do this all the time, but like his date would go to the bathroom and he'd be swiping while she was in the bathroom and then setting up dates for later that night while he's on a date. And it's like, (laughs) that's stacking the odds, certainly. Like, (laughs) I guess you'll meet someone that way eventually. Like, holy shit, but I would drive me crazy. So yeah, I think online dating probably is like the biggest, one of the biggest ways that the internet has changed sex just because it literally changed the way we have sex, (laughs) like the way we hook up. Totally. Yeah. I think you bring up a good point. It's like, I mean, some of it can't be replicated online. I mean, everyone's different. Some people are more comfortable on the internet, but like, you know, a lot of people want the IRL thing, but... Like, I don't know if I ever would have met my now fiance if we wouldn't have matched on Tinder. And Mm -hmm. my brother, my younger brother, he just married this summer a Swedish woman. (laughs) And they were both traveling and on Tinder. And that's how they met. And they would have never met. Yeah. 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 And like that, I mean, I assume they probably just like wouldn't have just introduced themselves like, how would they have ever met, like, organically I think they were way? just in the same city, but they wouldn't oh have necessarily gosh. crossed paths. That's so crazy. 
Yeah. yeah, stuff like that. I'm just like, people exist because of like, like the old systems, like MUDs and VBSs, people met through that. And, you know, now we have like Tinder and Bumble and whatever else, Hinge, I guess. Yeah, whole like life trajectories change because of these technologies, which is wild. Yeah, totally. So on the predictions front, just in terms of like online dating and kind of like romance, what do you see for the future? Oh, man. I've been out of the game for a bit, so I'm like probably not qualified. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I think what I'm kind of observing from my friends who are using the apps, um, I think there's kind of a, a desire to do more of the like substantive connection first again and I also kind of wonder if that's like that maybe changed during the pandemic too it's like uh, you're yeah. a little less like gonna jump the gun on meeting someone immediately maybe you want to vet them a little more make sure they're not like totally psycho <laughs> um, they're worth getting COVID <laughs> right exactly it's like can I risk my life for this person um <laughs> but yeah and then you see that with also like I guess hinge is like one that like you really have to put some thought into what you're putting down in the app or you have to think about what you're going to say to the other person. And I think that's the development and success of that kind of app is probably an indication that people want that kind of thing more than just like the immediate, if you're looking for something like long-term, maybe you want something a little more. I don't think something like Tinder is ever going to fall out of popularity. Like people Mm -hmm. will always want to just like meet, you know, local singles in their area. (laughs) (laughs) those ads will never die like but yeah I think the novelty of that maybe has worn off Uh Um, just crazy because it's only been 10 years or something I guess 10 years is plenty of time but (laughs) not not an old company for sure so kind of the dark side of dating and the internet is revenge porn and things like that what were some of your biggest discoveries in that realm um, the, a lot of what's in the book about revenge porn builds on my work in journalism because that's an area that I cover quite a bit. So I think as far as like discoveries, I think it was more just like an expansion of like my understanding of it. Have we seen an evolution with it? Do you think we're getting better at, I don't know, moderating it or like creating laws for it? I, creating laws for it, I would say, like, more laws exist than they did. I think a lot of the laws that are out there aren't sufficient. Um, they put a lot of the the onus on victims of it. So, yeah, I, I think it's good to have more, like, awareness that this is a problem. I, it's definitely, like, not enough. Like, once your your stuff is out there on the internet, it's just out there basically forever. And I think we have evolved in a big way in the way we talk about Mm -hmm. that conversation. Like it used to be like, if you don't want your nudes on the internet, don't send them. And if Mm -hmm. you do send them, that's your fault. There's a lot of victim blaming. I mean, that's what I grew up hearing is kind of like, you know, you shouldn't have sent them. Even with actresses that would get their stuff stolen, we would shame them for even sending in the nude in the first place. Right. Yeah. Like the, the fappening or like when that big, like data dump of nude actresses came out, there was such an ugly time, I think in our understanding of consent and also just respecting women, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is still a big problem, but like, you know, we're, it's less, 
you shouldn't be new on the internet if you if you don't want it to go everywhere. It's more like we're slowly turning toward this. It's not okay to go download that stuff. It's not okay to like spread it around your school. Don't look at it if you if you know that it's not something that someone wanted out there to begin with. Which you know we had whole like you know tabloids were like devoted to this beat of like finding and publishing celebrity nudes and things like that. And it was just so gross. And I think now, at least culturally, I think a lot more people would be like, that's, that's fucked up. That's not okay. I mean, we, we had like, you know, you have the, the big, um, Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee series that just came out. And then I talk about right. um, that, that whole in- incident in the book too. But, you know, the, the judge that ruled on that was basically like, you shouldn't have taken the video mm-hmm. of yourselves if you didn't want it out there. And it's like, that was a tape in their house. Like, <laughs> They did that for their own, like, private consumption, and it was still used against them. So, yeah, I think we've definitely made some strides, but, like, God, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, like, on the sex work tip, I mean, I, full disclosure, have an OnlyFans. (laughs) That was a (laughs) pandemic baby, which has been, like, a really fun outlet for me, but not something that I take super seriously, but... Yeah, I guess what what have been the big developments in terms of like the democratization of sex work on the internet and I don't know, any like less good things that are happening <laughs> in that realm. Yeah, I mean, people getting OnlyFans during pandemic, I think is probably the biggest thing that's happened lately is, you know, like the boom in that um, was crazy to see. I mean, this the company was big before, but it just became humongous after during the pandemic and after um or I guess you know whatever you call what we're in now <laughs> current <laughs> current pandemic plus, like, two yeah 2.0 yeah so I think just the existence of like of sites that people can use to sell their own content I think goes back way before OnlyFans and has been the biggest development just in the industry in general is being able to control your own content, like being able to own that content, being able to film it when you want, how you want, not have to like adhere to a certain like look or style or body type. I would say just the the kind of turning these sites into something that someone can actually like control their own user-generated content has been massive. Because before it was like, you would go record with a studio or you would kind of do it more like a modeling gig would be in the mainstream where you had like an agent and producers and things involved. And you're not an owner. Yeah. You don't own that once you sign it off to the company that shot it, unless they were very chill, which a lot of them weren't. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's like, you can, you have full creative control over all, all of that. So yeah, I think that was maybe the biggest thing in recent history that has changed the industry. It's also just absolutely revolutionized like people's livelihoods and the ability to make a living in general. I know a lot of people just get OnlyFans just because it's like money on the side, but it's also mm-hmm. like a lot of people were doing sex work before they were able to get online and do their own. And then they were like, oh, this is much safer and more like mm-hmm. controlled that I can actually be online and not like meeting people in person, which there are definitely like pluses and minuses. I know a lot of people feel like it's, they feel safer just meeting people in person than even being online, which is interesting. And I think that gets to the point of like, you know, the sharing of images without their consent. Um, right. 
and being outed in their community. There are some services now, though, like their photo will get out leaked in some way on Reddit or whatever, and then they can get a service and try to get it taken down. But yeah, yeah. it is challenging. <laughs> yeah, I talked to one of those services about like the issues of image abuse online. Because I think, I mean, this probably goes back to like the attitude of like, you know, don't put yourself out there if you don't want yourself right. out there kind of thing. But it's like, I think when we talk about non-consensual nudes, we leave out sex workers a lot of the times because it's like, oh, they're sex workers. They they must want it out there. <laughs> it's like, no, that's still or their money. Work. It's yeah. still their, like, it's, you know, that is actually like their content that they're making money off of. Like they definitely don't want it just like everywhere. And it's also really dangerous to get yourself leaked if you're not out in your like mm-hmm. community or with your, you know, you get kicked out of your apartment for that kind of thing. Right. Your kids could be taken away. Um, so I talked to one of the services, uh, Cam Model Protection, and they were, they were like, yeah, this is like definitely a huge, huge issue is people stealing images from OnlyFans or like whatever site, like ripping them off of like live streams and my free cans and things like that. And then spreading them around. But it's amazing the work that they do. It's like, they just like get it all taken. Not probably not all of it. <laughs> But, like, it's gone from, like, all these places that they were worried about. That's technology that I don't understand. (laughs) I'm like, wow, you're doing the Lord's work and also witchcraft, like, magic. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the trend is, like, taking out the middleman, right? Like, Mm -hmm. taking the pimp out of sex work a little bit. Is that what you see? Yeah, yeah. And we see this with a lot of different industries, but just taking – Yeah, like you said, like the middleman being a creator of anything and being able to control it. You're still kind of, you're still beholden to like the platforms a lot of the times unless you write your own website. You know, OnlyFans is still taking a cut. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's, it's definitely a trend just across labor and work in general is to be able to, you know, work for yourself in a way. Um, It's interesting to kind of look at sex work through that lens and kind of say, you know, it's, you know, going back to like taking it as seriously as like one of these big companies is like, you also have to take like the individual labor as seriously as like you would any other worker. Hey, privates, before we get back to the interview with Samantha, could I ask you for a quick favor? I am trying to hit a goal of 250 ratings on Apple Podcasts. At the moment, I have 246, and I'm trying to get to 50 ratings on Spotify. Right now, we have 46. And it is super easy for you to help me hit these goals. If you could just go to ratethispodcast.com slash private and give us a five-star rating and review and just write a quick note what you like about the podcast or maybe your favorite episode or guest. Here's the deal. It really helps people find the show. It's social proof so they know it's a worthwhile listen. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com slash private, or you can do it directly on Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on Spotify, you just go to the upper left-hand corner of our page, you click the star button, and then you click all five stars. Thank you so much. Now, back to the show. Okay, so social media. How has social media and sex kind of collided big picture? Yeah, um... I think that when I think of like colliding, of course, I think of like Facebook because when Facebook was first getting started, there were like protests outside of the headquarters about being able to show like breastfeeding pictures and being able to show like the infamous 
female presenting nipple. Um, very <laughs> Ooh, scary. <scandalous>. Yeah, spooky. <laughs> those spooky nipples that are just so inappropriate for anyone to see. And Facebook had to take a stand on that kind of early on and to make a rule about it. And they didn't really have rules about it before people, you know, I guess started trying to upload this stuff on Facebook. And then they're like, oh, maybe we don't want this. And now we're going to make it a thing. And of course, fast forward to today and you have nothing remotely sexual allowed on Facebook and Instagram now too. So yeah, I think there's always been like pushback on that kind of thing. It was just interesting to kind of read about and see uh, the history of that because now we kind of just accept that like, oh, you can't post anything sexual on Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg is approved. But like, <laughs> it wasn't always that way. It was at one point it was like, oh, maybe we can actually like change their minds about it, mm-hmm. pr- protest out of this. And then to kind of see, you know, you have like, like Tumblr just announced that they're bringing back nudes. Um, but when they got rid of not safe for work content altogether a couple of years ago, it was really devastating for like people on the platform. It was devastating for people who like Tumblr porn. I know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, what else are people going to this website for? Yeah, it was catastrophic for a lot of people and communities on that platform in a way that like I don't think Tumblr really fully realized it would be. Or if they did, they just were like, we're selling this company, we don't care. So to have them bring back nudity of any sort, I mean, you still can't do porn on Tumblr. Well, I mean, people still are, you know, it's like, there's still horny shit on Tumblr. (laughs) Um, But like officially, it can only be, I guess, non-sexual nudes, which is such an interesting line to draw. It's like, I don't know, who are you going to tell to not get like roused up over this dude? Like what? You're policing you know, very like subjective experience. I mean, and Twitter is totally different. Obviously, this is a sex podcast. And so when I post, I can't post the same stuff on yeah. Instagram. I have to like hide the words and, you know, put in the different symbols and same with Facebook. And then on Twitter, I can write sex, blowjob, whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's and kind of keeping all of that straight in your mind is also like, it's so strange to have to do that. And then on TikTok, there are certain things you can say in the audio, but not in the caption or like in a text uh. caption, you can say things, but not say them out loud. It's the lines are so blurry and vague. And I think that's on purpose because it gives the platforms a little bit of wiggle room to be able to just kind of say whatever they want goes. You broke the rules. It's like, in what way? I don't yeah. even. No, but yeah, the the constant having to like figure out what's the word that's going to get me like shadow banned on one of these sites. I can't say sex, but can I say sex with two Gs? Right. And it's like, no, because then the algorithm figured out that that means sex. And it's like, okay, what's the next like spelling of sex <laughs> that I can move on to? It's like, I don't know. I think we're going to end up with like new words out of this. <laughs> the English oh, language totally. is going to change. <laughs> and like, you know, a hundred years, historians are going to be like, we can pinpoint when the meaning of sex changed. Yeah, hex also became sex. Yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, it was with fucking TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, on the social media front, who's doing it the best, do you think? And how would you change those rules and moderation? 
I mean, with Twitter, like, imploding right now, I see a lot of kind of websites jumping in and saying, we'll do it better. I haven't really experimented with a lot of them. I know, like, Pillowfort is one that says it's more sex positive. I haven't really played around with Pillowfort much. I think if Tumblr could get its shit together, it could be a good one. It's not even so much Tumblr doesn't have its shit together. It's, like, people just don't trust it anymore, and Mm -hmm. it's seen as, like, outdated. But I do think that, like, if people went back to it, maybe it could be something. Twitter has always been safe for sexual speech to a point. It's like, it's one of the only social media platforms that's mainstream where you have lots of different people there and not just people there for porn. They're there for lots of things. So that one is a really valuable one that I actually, I mean, I am like the biggest complainer about Twitter as a platform and I really don't want Twitter to implode (laughs) because- you're losing your ability to advertise your OnlyFans or post news and sell customs, like in a place where you also have like, I don't know, engineers and professors and people just like talking about boring mm-hmm. stuff. You also have like people posting whole. It's like, I think that's great. I think more of that. <laughs> but, you know, Twitter also is, you know, very famous for just blocking and banning and downranking sex workers for no discernible reason which is so incredibly frustrating because it's like at least tell me what the rule is that i broke um Mm -hmm. so i don't know if they're doing it the best but it's like that's what we got right now which is kind of the the case a lot of the time with a lot of platforms just through the years it's like this isn't perfect but like (laughs) it's the best we got yeah (laughs) it's what we got Yeah. yeah um Okay, so moving forward to the future, you kind of end future-facing, but what are your big predictions about sex and the internet and how they're going to continue to change each other? Yeah, I, um, it's so hard to kind of predict that kind of thing because it's like, I didn't predict, I wouldn't have been able to predict any, like no one could have seen any of this coming where we're at today other than like people actually in the industry, which I'm not in the industry, but I'm like studying it as closely as I can. And then I'm still like, it's anyone's guess where things go. But I think, I mean, I I see a lot of promise in like, especially with like some of these big platforms, like Meta just laid off like a ton of people. Like there's all these big companies seem to be collapsing in a way. So I'm kind of hopeful that some new things spring up in their places that actually value the fact that people want, they don't want to be censored when it comes to sexual expression. They want to be able to express themselves in that way and bring their whole selves to the internet. And whether that means sex work or just like being, you know, people get banned from social media platforms just for like, for being out and trans and mm-hmm. and gay and everything else. And it's like, nobody wants that. <laughs> like, nobody except for like the most like conservative, like lobbyists. So I'm hoping that like in the place of these big companies falling apart, maybe we can see something new and interesting crop up that's more like creator focused and, you know, people actually want to build communities on it and not just be like hooked to a machine that's stealing their data, Totally, (laughs) which is how a lot of the internet feels today. It's just like, I am the product of this company that's making so much money off of my posts for some reason. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what I kind of hope. I heard, uh, I'm probably saying his name wrong, but Balaji on mm-hmm. Lex Friedman's podcast, but yeah. he's been on like Tim Ferriss and whatever, and he's like a tech 
guy mm-hmm. from SF or formerly SF. Anyway, his big prediction lines up with what you said, which is that in place of these big platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, we're going to have like smaller platforms that are more people seem to care about each other more and do yeah. have kind of like a more community vibe. Yeah, I think that's what people want ultimately. I mean, when I I have so many people muted and blocked on my Twitter just because <laughs> I don't want to interact with them and I don't want them to interact with me. And it's just like, you're trying to kind of filter down this fire hose of, I don't care what like a lot of Twitter has to say. And even though I'm not even following, you know, like even a fraction of Twitter, I still just see stuff that I'm like, I don't give a shit and I don't want you giving a shit about me. Mm-hmm. Um, don't even look at me. Don't perceive me. <laughs> But, like, if you can kind of silo that off into, like, smaller things, I think it would be good. I also wonder if maybe keeping it too siloed, then you lose some of that inner right. connectivity. Like, maybe maybe something floats in my feed that I would never consider before and not from someone I wouldn't follow before. And that's, you know, eye-opening or something. So, yeah, I do think we are going to go in that direction and kind of to do more of the smaller community stuff. But... Yeah, I think it's a give and take. Like, there are positives and negatives to both, so. Yeah. yeah. Are we going to be fucking in the metaverse in how many years? <laughs> People are fucking in the metaverse today. <laughs> it is happening. If it exists, people are fucking in it. That needs to be, like, the new a new rule, rule 35 or something. Um, yeah, it's – the metaverse definitely, I think, is – that's another one where I think – I don't have a lot of hope in the way the metaverse – is described by like Mark Zuckerberg, but like people are using like VR chat and mm-hmm. some of these other rec room and things like that. Like people are actually like doing really interesting things in those spaces that is so under the radar of big companies, which I think is why they're good and cool. <laughs> Thank you so much to Samantha Cole. Again, she's the senior editor at Motherboard, which is Vice's tech outlet. And her new book, How Sex Changed the Internet and the Internet Changed Sex, is out now. And not only is it a super interesting history, as I'm sure you could tell from this conversation, but it's also full of nostalgia from our earlier internet days, which is really fun and sometimes embarrassing to remember. (laughs) You can find Samantha on Twitter at Sam Lee Cole. You can follow me at Courtney Kosak. Last name is K-O-C-A-K on Twitter and Instagram. And follow the show at Private Parts Unknown on Instagram and Private Parts Un on Twitter and now TikTok. So come give us a follow on there for some awesome video content from these interviews. And I will definitely follow you back because right now we only have like two followers. <laughs> we also love to stay in touch in between episodes via Substack, so subscribe to our newsletter at privatepartsunknown.substack.com. There's a link in the episode description. Shout out to Amy Rausch for the bomb-ass theme music. For more about Amy and her music, check out amyrausch.com. That's Amy, R-A-A-S-C-H dot com. This episode was mixed by my ride-or-die audio guy, Michael Castaneda of Plastic Audio. And after enjoying this sex podcast, I want to turn you on to another one of Pleasure Podcast's amazing offerings. It's called Shameless Sex, and it's by Amy Baldwin and April Lampert, two of my favorite sex podcasters in the game. Here is a little preview. 
I'm Amy, sex and relationship coach, certified sex educator, and 2022's Sexpert of the Year in the sex toy industry. And I'm April, VP of Hot Octopus, sex toy mogul, and 2016's Woman of the Year in the sex toy industry. Allow us to introduce you to Shameless Sex, a real talk, informative podcast all about sex and relationships, but with a playful twist. Want to learn how to eat pussy like a champ? Suck like a boss. Ew. How to better communicate, connect with, and touch lovers and partners. Or maybe you just want to be the master baiter of your own sexual pleasure. Shameless Sex releases episodes weekly and features accredited doctors, authors, therapists, and educators. Available on all podcast apps. Just look up Shameless Sex to discover your new best friends when it comes to all things sex and relationships. To learn more, visit shamelesssex.com. And I'll be back with two very cool episodes of my own, one featuring the famous lusty lady strippers who unionized in SF back in the 90s and inspired a whole new generation of dancers demanding worker protections. And another episode where I give my Cleavana review. What? Am I a Kardashian? (laughs) If you don't know what Cleavana is, it is an orgasm-enhancing pussy treatment. So I cannot wait to spill all the tea on that. So stay tuned. Until next time, I am wishing you lots of horniness and happiness and sexy internet experiences. Bye. Bye.